Each Sunday morning, the, uh, the Wartmans and I gather in the prayer room to, to pray for the, the, the service and for the day, and uh, it's been a, a tradition that has um, preceded their time here, and it goes back to when I started here, and maybe it preceded that time as well, but we're there every Sunday uh, to start the morning off. We try to start off the right way and pray over the, the coming service and everything that goes on on the campus here, and this morning, as, as I was listening to Jeff and Chelsea take their turns praying, and I was thinking about the things on my own mind and heart, I found myself um, thanking God for what I called the discomfort of Christmas, the discomfort of Advent, the, uh, the inconvenience of it all, the, the stress and the busyness and the weariness of it all. As uh, Jack so aptly said, the the trials, the tribulations, and the travel, the, the, the dreaded three T's of the holiday season. And, and indeed, for those of you that travel, you know that uh, trial and tribulation almost always accompany uh, that activity. You know, those things can actually help us appreciate what the first Christmas was actually like. Imagine yourself as Mary and Joseph with their travels and their trials. Has um, anybody in here ever traveled with a pregnant woman before. You know, was it on the back of an animal or was it in a vehicle? Yeah. So imagine the trials and the tribulations you experienced, but then um, add to that the difficulties of travel in the first century and the, the crowds of people uh, moving around for census purposes and um, finding that when you arrive, there's, there's really no place for you. There's no comfortable uh, resting place. In fact, you're not only going to be uncomfortable, but you're going to give birth in, in something that is, well, it wasn't designed for people giving birth in. Imagine how dirty and how messy and how uncomfortable that was. And when you start to think about that first Christmas, you, you gain some perspective. And I think you and I have a choice when we're faced with the discomfort of the season what is our attitude going to be? What is the perspective we're going to have? Is it going to be something that uh, results in, in complaining and grumbling and, to use a phrase you might be familiar with, belly aching about the way things are? Or will we allow it to, to focus our minds and our, our hearts on the coming of God as it actually was into the world? That's my hope for you well, that has been my hope for you for this sermon series. So we've been going through these familiar passages in Isaiah. It's that they would allow us to deconstruct any false notion of what Christmas is or what we think it should be and help us to see and to celebrate and to receive it rightly. For the past couple of weeks, we've been working through those chapters in Isaiah that uh, they're in chapter 7 and 8 that, uh, that have familiar Advent passages that you that you hear nearly every year. They're printed on our Christmas cards and on our ornaments on our Christmas trees. Some of you even have a sweater or two with, uh, with a verse from Isaiah. But usually, uh, our familiarity with these passages comes from their presence in the New Testament. We know them from the Gospels and from other uh, places throughout the New Testament that quote Isaiah. And I have wanted, the, the thrust behind the series has been, I want to go to those familiar passages, but I want to go to them in their original context. And I want to get the full, more fuller-orbed picture of of what they meant for the people originally when they were, uh, when those when those prophecies were delivered, as well as what they mean for you and me today. Isaiah, as you recall, 
was writing to a generation of God's people who were lost in a spiritual and moral darkness. He's writing to a people who are experiencing the failure of the Davidic dynasty, who are experiencing uh, what happens when, when you turn from Yahweh and welcome instead the, as it says in, back in chapter 2, verse 6, the practices of the East, that is sorcery and, and paganism, this, these foreign ideas, these, this foreign worldview that has crept into the life of God's people. And, and as a result, we're told in that same uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 6, that Yahweh has rejected his people, which is a, a startling expression, one that, that should shock us and jolt us even today here in the 21st century. Yahweh has rejected his people, and now we're told that judgment is at the door in the form of the Assyrian army. And so we ended last week in chapter 8, that chapter that describes what remains for a people in darkness. It is nothing but trouble, anguish, and dark despair. And we ended there last week on purpose. Because I wanted you to feel the gravity of the situation. I wanted you to feel the, the, the sense of being on, on the precipice of doom. And what would come next? Well, because of who God is, it's not a message of doom, but a message of hope. And it is there to that message of hope that we turn this morning to Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in the first verse. We're going to read just the first seven verses here together. If you have a guest Bible, uh, we're on page 555 if you want to follow along there, or it'll be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord to a people lost in darkness. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery, and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. A time is coming when Galilee will be filled with glory. Now that is a very interesting geographical clue that is worth taking notice of this morning. Because Galilee would have been the region where the hand of God's wrath would strike first. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, we're told. Those are the, the regions north of Judah. That area where the Assyrian Empire's invasion would begin. 
And as Assyria attacks from the north, what once belonged to the people of God will then become, what we're told in the same verse, Galilee of whom? Of the Gentiles. Interesting, isn't it? That as the, the foreign invaders come in and as the people of God are exiled out, what once belonged to them will now belong to someone else. But it is there at the starting point of God's wrath that the light of God will begin to shine. And those details are not insignificant. They say a lot to me, but maybe they say something different to you. But at the very least, I think what can be taken from this are these two points. Number one, at some level, the wrath of God is connected to the revelation of his glory. It's not, here's wrath and here's revelation of glory. I think what we're being told is, at some point, at, in some form or fashion, these two things go together. That God is holy and does not tolerate darkness reveals something about him. It tells us something about who he is, about what his, what his value system is, what his character is like. And for those who are wicked, this is bad news. We don't want to learn this truth about God, that, that he has wrath for wickedness, wrath upon the sinfulness and the rebellion of, of humanity. We don't want to hear that if we're wicked. But, but for those who long for what is wrong to be made right, well, this is news that our, our heart longs to hear. But, but perhaps more importantly than this, this idea that, that God's wrath is connected to the revelation of his glory, perhaps more important than that is this, that God's anger and God's judgment, well, it has a redemptive purpose in mind. God aims the light of his glory at the darkest of places. That the very point where his judgment begins to fall might be the very place where his salvation begins to dawn. For you and for me here today, it tells us that he, he doesn't want to come into our lives and, and circumvent the, the deepest problems, the deepest issues that we have, or the deepest things wrong that we face. He doesn't overlook the sinfulness. He doesn't overlook the rebellion in our hearts. He doesn't overlook the, the brokenness or the, the injustices that happen to us, the things that are beyond our control that aren't even our own fault. He doesn't overlook those things or bypass them in any way. But on the contrary, he wants to come right into the very worst of our lives. Yes, to discipline. Yes, to reform. Of course, there's, there's this sense that as a father, he wants to reshape the, the contents and the character of our hearts, of course. But he wants to come and, and to bring healing. He wants to come and bring wholeness where you and I need it most. Though Judah has turned from him and rejected him and cut themselves off from him and find themselves in the darkness of sin and rebellion and exile, though their land, which once was fruitful, will lie in waste and their lush vineyards will become like patches of briars and thorns. Nevertheless, they who walk in darkness will see a great light. In the land where death casts its long shadow, a light will shine. Now, some of your translations, if you have something different, might use that sort of uh, tense of those verbs there, this idea that these things will happen. And, and it's fair to, to translate it that way because, of course, as Isaiah was writing these things, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, um, he was talking about events that hadn't yet happened, right? He's, he's foreseeing, at some level, something that will happen not days to come, necessarily, but the fullness will happen hundreds of years to come. And so, chronologically, he's describing events that find the fullest expression in the future. 
But if we were to dive into the original language, we would see that, that these verbs here are not future tense verbs. They are past tense verbs. And that's an interesting little detail, isn't it? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that with, with a prophetic eye, Isaiah sees events that are yet to happen as if they have already happened. That's the certainty with which Isaiah sees the future. The the, the certainty that Isaiah considers the events of what God is going to do to bring his people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He could describe the events as if they had already happened. Because why? Because of who God is. Because, as he says at the end of our verse, of our passage there in the seventh verse, because the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make it happen. Because of that, Isaiah sees it and says, well, it's as good as done. And so you and I can be sure. In whatever darkness we, we find ourselves in, or whatever darkness we find within ourselves, that there is hope for the light of God to break in. It may not have happened yet, but you can be sure that it will. It's no coincidence that the one that Isaiah was talking about with these prophetic eyes would one day walk in Galilee and declare, I am the light of the world. How's that for the fulfillment of prophecy. That Jesus would walk the streets of Galilee and say, those who come to me and who follow me will not walk in darkness. In other words, spiritual, moral decay will not define your life if you are with me. Yes, the world is full of darkness, to be sure. It's not a promise that once you follow Jesus, then all is well. But it is a promise that in Christ, it is well with my soul, as we sing. Those who follow me will not have to walk in darkness because you will have light that leads to life. For those who look to him, nothing can prevent the light of who he is and what he does from shining. There's no circumstance that is too bleak. There's no situation that is too grim. There's no darkness that is too great to keep God from manifesting the fullness of himself to you. And so, you and I can read this passage in Isaiah that was, that was written, what, 2,700 years or more ago, 2,800 years or more ago, and we can hear the promises that were made to people then applying directly to us. That in like it says in verse 3, that he will enlarge those who are being crushed. Do you find yourself buckling under the weight of life today? Do you feel that, that source of pressure encroaching in and pressing you down? You, you feel it. You, you bend beneath it. You wonder if, if your life is, is going to be able to withstand it. And the promise is that when the light of God shines, the promise of what will take place then is, is he will provide a counterpressure, a, a, a source of, of strength and presence, a, a structure that, that comes from within that will prevent your life from imploding in upon itself. 
hear the promise of Isaiah that says, those who are in the throes of barrenness, well, in him, you will be able to rejoice as those who rejoice at a harvest. That your life will begin to bear fruit. A fruit that does not come from you, but comes from him who dwells in you. For those who are beat down and and oppressed, well, he breaks the yoke of slavery. He relieves heavy burden. He takes the rod of your oppressor and he smashes it into pieces. He promises light. He promises life and blessing and freedom, but not to the good. It is, who is this promise to? Well, it's to those who are trusting him in darkness. Those who are in darkness that trust him. It's not to, to the ones who have it all together. The ones who perceive that, that they, don't, they don't really have a need for these things. No, it is to those who are in the darkness and in whom the darkness resides. It's those who see the need of the light to break in. It's those who hear the promises and believe it is to them that these promises come to fulfillment. And that's a shock. There's lots of things about this that are shocking to the system. But for me, there's something especially shocking about this idea that the promises are to those who are in the darkness. Did you know that WebMD, and by the way, I have it on good authority, that if you have any physical ailment whatsoever, all you need to do is go to WebMD. (laughs) It'll tell you everything you need to know and everything you need to do. Now, it just may be that your hangnail might be diagnosed as cancer, but don't worry. WebMD will get you sorted out. So I have it on good authority that that's the case. But nevertheless, WebMD has an article on karma. Did you know that? You can find it. Go to WebMD. There's a little search button at the top. Don't do it right now. You can do it after church. Just take my word for it for now because I don't want you to get lost on some rabbit trail of WebMD articles. In fact, I don't really want you, just take my word for it, don't go there at all. In fact, we're just going to ban WebMD from the life of EMC altogether, okay? (laughs) Go to your doctor if you have a problem. Don't go to the internet, because it's only going to tell you the absolute worst thing possible, okay? Don't freak yourself out any more than you already have. But if you were to go to WebMD theoretically and type, click the little button at the top for the search and type karma, there it is. An article there written by an Indian doctor. I know you're surprised by that because we're talking about something like karma. The doctor's name is, and I know I'm going to get this wrong, so if there's anybody that, I don't think there's anybody that has Indian descent or maybe if you know someone who's Indian, this is not meant to be a, you know, any offense. I just don't know how to pronounce the name. But I'm going to say Poonam Sachdev. Okay. <laughs> if I say it confidently enough, you'll just assume I know what I'm talking about. But she's trying her very best to talk about what is really a a religious or philosophical concept, but from sort of like a scientific perspective. It's almost like she's trying to merge the two worlds, right? We can talk about, this is supposed to be a sort of a scientific, you know, medicine type of context, but I want to talk about something that's really a religious or philosophical concept. And and in short, I can summarize the whole article to say this, and this is a quote that kind of summarizes it best. If you act with good intentions, happiness will follow. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Who would have thought, Carol? Yeah. As long as you act with good intentions, happiness will follow. If you act with ill intentions, problems will follow. It's a very simple view of reality, isn't it? It's another way of saying, hey, what goes around comes around. 
or you reap what you sow. Now, listen, I don't want to entirely diminish some of those ideas, all right? There is a sense that you will reap what you sow, all right? But you and I both know that, that this, I, this worldview falls, falls apart in a broken world such as ours. You can act with all the best intentions in the world. That does not, it does not mean that the happiness will necessarily follow. And, and there are plenty of people out there with plenty of ill intentions who face far less problems, at least on the surface, than you and I feel like we do on a day-to-day basis. This worldview breaks down. And while there's some truth to it, of course, Isaiah is not talking about karma. He is not talking about a, a, a worldview where good things necessarily only belong to good people. No, he is promising good things to those in darkness. And that disrupts our sensibilities. It sort of deconstructs our our own sense of the world and what is fair and what is right. WebMD can't account for that. And I know it can't because I, I went back to the homepage and clicked that search button again, and this time I typed the word grace. And do you know what results I got from that? In fact, I got the little spinny blue wheel that just, it's like, we don't understand grace. There's no, there's no medical document. There's no scientific research paper. There's no you know, laboratory that can make sense of this idea that the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe would promise good things to bad people. Now, you might be saying, I thought a moment ago you just said that his wrath is connected to the revelation of his glory, and that's true. There is a sense that absolutely God will not permit wickedness. You can find peace in your heart today knowing that in the end, in an ultimate sense, goodness will triumph over evil. But in the meantime, His wrath is also connected to his redemption. And he moves in such a way in the dark places as to reveal his light that it might welcome you to himself. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? Look, grace is shocking. It's a jolt to the system. It's surprising. It has no logical explanation. And yet... The only thing more shocking than the idea of grace, at least to me, especially in our passage here, is the means by which it is offered. Now, if we were to flip over to the 64th chapter of Isaiah, we come to this passage that says, this is Isaiah speaking of God. He says, when you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down again. How the mountains would quake in your presence once more. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. Now, why would Isaiah talk like that? Well, it's because he, he remembers in the, the recorded history of God's saving works in the world 
on behalf of his people. He remembered the trembling mountains and the, the burning fires associated with Mount Sinai and Mount Carmel and the other times that God manifested his, his, his wonderful, terrible glory and power. But now we know that God will move a different way. God is poised to move a different way than what Isaiah would expect him to do. It's not going to be a way that involves earthquakes and fire, but scandal. Imagine that, the holy God moving in a way unlike ever seen before in, a, in an ultimate sense that, that eclipses all the ways he moved in the past and it begins with the scandal of an unmarried, pregnant teenage girl. Listen, grace is a shocking concept, but it's also shocking in how it's offered. The scandal of an unmarried, pregnant girl, the dirtiness and humility of a manger. An audience, not of the, the, the upper crust of society, but of the, the dirty crust of society. The social outcasts, they're the ones who will be there to welcome the arrival of the one. A baby wrapped tightly in swaddling clothes. For all the times God has revealed himself through fire and flood and plague and blinding light, nothing would compare to the moment when it will be said that unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And he's not just any child. He's not just any son. No, he, he is one that comes with titles. And Isaiah gives us these titles so we can begin to just, at the, in the slightest way, begin to just start to wrap our minds around the, the totality of who he is. He is wonderful counselor. And not just because he teaches, and he will teach. Of course, we have we have a record of his teachings and the things that he had to say and, and the lessons that can be gleaned from that for our lives. But he's not wonderful counselor just because he teaches. He's wonderful counselor because by virtue of who he is, he reveals. He's not Confucius. He's Emmanuel. He's not the great teacher among us, but God among us, the, the fullness of God in the flesh, he's ultimate reality who has come in a way that he becomes knowable in a personal way according to our own categories. We can begin to not just perceive who he is, we can begin to relate to him in ways we understand. Paul in Colossians 2, 3 says, in him lie hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not just good life lessons. Oh, he's more than just a teacher. No, in him, in his person, lie wisdom and knowledge. He does not merely possess or convey truths. No, he himself is truth enfleshed. He will be called mighty God. Listen, God, God isn't just sending some ambassador to represent him. No, God himself has come. And Isaiah couldn't fully have comprehended how, right? Isaiah 
He, he could see with prophetic eyes what the Spirit enabled him to see, but there's no way he could have fully seen or fully comprehended or fully have understood how exactly the son of David would also be the eternal son of God. In fact, that was not even a, a category in his mind. That, he, that, there's, that within God, there's, 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 diff, there's interpersonal differentiation. That there is, yes, there's a father, but there's also a son and a spirit. And there's, there's hints to this reality. There's, there's, um, there's, we can, in retrospect, through the, with the lens of Christ, go back into the Old Testament, and we can perceive where God was progressively revealing these truths about himself, but no one back then would have fully comprehended these things. In fact, on this side of history, in light of Christ, in light of the apostles, in light of the, the church councils and the church creeds, in 2,000 years of church history, we still don't fully comprehend these things. But we know this, that the son of David and the son of Mary is the son of God. As the creed says, God from God, light from light, very God, true God from true God, who for us in our salvation came down from heaven by the Spirit, was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, and became man. In the incarnation of Jesus, mighty God himself has come. He will be called Everlasting Father. Speaking of Trinitarian theology, you and I with our Trinitarian ears hear he will be called Everlasting Father, and we're like, wait a minute, what? I thought he was the Son. And you're right. Isaiah's not saying that the, the Son would be the person of the Father himself. No, he is the Son of the Father. Right? When he's talking about everlasting father, he's talking about this son as creator and preserver and protector. He's talking about the, the character and the essence of his loving and protecting government. You and I know that the person of the son is not the person of the father. And yet you and I also know that the life of the father is in the son. Right? And to know the Son, is to know the Father. To believe in the Son is to believe in the Father. Jesus himself in John 14, 11 says, believe me. That's a way of saying, hey, what I'm about to tell you is important. <laughs> Anybody ever have a mom that says, believe me this? Right? You better believe what I'm about to tell you. You better listen. It should cause her ears to perk up. Jesus, what's the most important thing you could say to me in this moment? Believe me this, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He's not saying, I am the Father. He's not saying the Father is the Son. That would be to confuse the persons. In fact, the very construction of this, of this sentence demands that we distinguish the person. What does it mean that I am in myself? doesn't mean anything to us. No, he's saying the person of the Father, his life is in me. In the person of the Son, I am in him. There's this beautiful interpenetration of persons within the Godhead that our minds hear that and they, we don't fully get it. And yet we know this, whoever has the Son has the life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have the life. 1 John 5. If you want the life 
that is God's. You only receive it through the one in whom that life is. You receive it through the Son who's in the Father and the Father is in him. And Isaiah couldn't fully comprehend that. But you and I know it to be true. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yeah, last week I made the point that the peacemaker of heaven will be a polarizer on earth. And when I said that last week, I saw some some grins and chuckles out there. Because you know full well that being a Christian and bearing the name of Jesus in this world will cause conflict. Maybe some of you ringing the bell yesterday experienced a little bit of that conflict. Who would have thought that being out there trying to do the most good, as the little expression goes, could result in such headache and turmoil? And that's what, it, what it's like for those who, who would take up their cross to follow Jesus. He will cause conflict. He will cause people to, to butt heads like this. He will cause wars, not necessarily political wars, although political wars have been waged in his name, but wars within your heart. There's a spiritual battle that is taking place. And on one side is the enemy of your soul, and on the other side is, a, is one called Prince of Peace, He does cause conflict. He does cause offense just by virtue of who he is. But for those who receive him, well, he offers a peace that the world cannot explain and cannot offer. It is not a peace that comes from the absence of conflict, but a peace that comes from the absence of enmity between you and God. And that's really, in the final analysis, the only peace that really matters. That is the peace that can sustain you and help you withstand the darkness. They can help you make it through the hardship, through the the trials and the tribulations and the travels of Christmas. It is the peace of God that defies explanation. It is a peace that comes deep into the heart, deep into the soul, from the very presence of the one who has restored fellowship with you. Do you know his peace today? Do you know the, the joy which is the theme of the morning, the Advent theme of today, do you know the joy that comes from the presence of the Lord? From the intimacy that you get to experience because of what Christ has done for you. Despite who you are, despite what you've done, despite the the long record of offenses that have your name at the top, there's a peace that comes from knowing in him it's been wiped clean. And because of him, there's no longer a barrier between you and the one you were made for. But you can have a sweet, blessed intimacy and fellowship with him amidst the conflict, amidst the crisis. There can be a a peace that passes understanding. We can have a peace from knowing that his government, his ordering of things, his making right what is wrong one heart at a time, well, that will last forever. He hasn't come to to plant a a stake in the ground and say, from now on, it's going to be like this. Well, until the next one comes along and, and topples his flag and plants another. No, he's come to plant a flag in your heart and says, what I do here will never end. The the. The absence of enmity with God, the the peace that he comes to bring, isn't just some temporary fleeting thing that 
kind of gets you through a hard time. No, it's the reality of what he wants to do in your life that will never end, that will last forever. His ordering of things is eternal. Kings and rulers and tyrants, they come and go. Nations and empires may rise and fall, but Christ and his kingdom, well, they last forever. And you can rest in his kingdom once his kingdom rests in you. Does his kingdom rest in you? So how does God shine light into darkness? How does God bring hope to despair? How does he offer fruit and freedom and wisdom in life? How is the grace of God, this astonishing idea that that good things are promised even to bad people, how does that, how is that made available to us? Well, all of it is offered exclusively in the child who's born to us. The son who was given to us. He is the sphere of every spiritual blessing. There's not some sort of inventory of spiritual blessing out there that you can get maybe here and then maybe some different blessing you can get here. When, when it comes to Jesus, it's all or nothing. And if you, if you do not know Jesus, if your life is not lived in him, then you have zero access to spiritual blessing. But if your life is lived in him, if you do trust in him, if you do look to him and to his light and receive his light and his life, then you have every spiritual blessing. Isn't that interesting? The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He is the sphere of it all. See in that infant's face, the depths of deity. And labor while ye gaze to sound the mystery. In vain ye angels gaze no more, but fall and silently adore. That is your challenge this morning, church. To behold and to welcome the light of God in the face of Jesus. Emmanuel, God himself with us to trust him, to serve him, to adore him, to receive every spiritual blessing God has to offer the world in him, in him alone. Will you do that today? That is your challenge here on this third Sunday of Advent. Pastor Jeff, Lord, we we thank you that you have emptied the storehouse of heaven's riches and blessing. You've withheld nothing. You've poured it all out through your son, in your son, to us. Forgive us for seeking anything that is ultimately good 
or even temporarily good apart from him. There is no light. There is no life. There is no hope or peace or joy or wisdom or grace available to man apart from Jesus Christ. So strengthen our hearts this morning. Give us faith to see and to believe and to trust and to follow and to obey. To not be deceived by the world, the flesh, or the devil. To not be discouraged by the the troubles we face. To not be distracted by the brokenness that we have in our own lives. But to look to you amidst the brokenness amidst the trials and the tribulations, amidst the hardship, the busyness, the weight and the pressure of it all, to look to you in the midst of it and to welcome you in, the light of God in the face of Christ. And I pray that you would bless us in that way today. In Jesus' name, amen.